The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Just singing these songs, um, I, I know there's people in our midst that are weary, are struggling with what's going on in their life, wondering who is in, in charge and in control. And yet, Lord, as our worship just proclaimed to you and to each other, it is you. You are holy, you are true, you are steadfast, you are sovereign, you are the almighty God. Lord, thank you that as weak and frail and broken and sinful creatures, that through your son we can have a relationship with you. Thank you that we can come this morning as we can come every Sunday morning, but even every morning because your, your, your mercies are new every morning, that we can wake up and have a relationship with you. Thank you for that blessing. Lord, I pray this morning as we look at your word that you'd be with me to give me clarity of speech and mind and that you'd be with us, that we would walk out of this room better trusting and resting in you. In your son's name, amen. Well, this morning we are going to take a little break from the gospel of John. Um, it is leadership selection time around here at Community Bible Church. We do this every fall at the end of August, the, be, the beginning of September. Uh, and it is pointing towards our, we're looking forward to our congregational meeting in November when we will vote on our leadership for 2023. And so while the selection process is starting, I don't just want to say, hey, it's starting, go put, go um, nominate the various individuals that you uh, feel would be qualified for elder and deacon. Rather, I would like to stop and just remind us of what are the qualifications for elder and deacon that is given from scripture. Obviously, the world uh, picks a lot of leaders and has a lot of people in charge. There's a lot of committees. There's a lot of um, leadership groups. But Maybe you've never been a part of um, identifying a leader of the church and God was not silent on the fact of the men whom he wanted to be in a leadership position for his church. So we're just going to take a moment, just one Sunday, and just center ourselves and remind ourselves about the qualifications for leadership in the body of Christ. With that, I want to start by reading another psalm or the first six verses of another psalm. This is Psalm 24. David says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell within. For he has founded it upon the seas, he has established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul from what is false, who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. Such is the generations of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. In my mind's eye, I can envision David sitting on the, some balcony of his palace overlooking the beautiful countryside of Jerusalem and Israel and understanding that all of that, the world that we live in, all of the things that surrounding him are God's. God is the owner, God is the creator, God has dominion over all of our created world. He has dominion over it because he created all of it as we looked at in the Bible Sunday school class this morning. You know, it, it, there was nothing and then God spoke and there was light and there was things. Well, when you create something, 
when you own something, when you have dominion over something, you can determine how you want for things to look, how you want it to be cared for. And God has always been clear about how he wanted his world, his dominion, his kingdom to be cared for. You see, every place that God shows up in Scripture, every place that's his dwelling place, every place that's his throne room, every place that's his temple, he has always been very specific about who was to be in charge of that place, who he wanted to be the representative for caring for it, and also what they were to do. I mean, think back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was created. The Garden of Eden is, is um, the earthly dwelling place of God with man. So in the same way that God dwelt in heaven in the heavenly hosts, God has also dwelt with man with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He said that he walked with Adam in the cool of the day. So there was this communion there and the Garden of Eden was God's dwelling place. Well, think about who God put in charge of the Garden of Eden. Think about the representative that God said, I want you to have dominion and rule over this place and care for this place. Well, it was Adam. Even before Eve was created, Adam was the representative that God shows. It's your job to care for my dwelling place. Eve was the helper, but Adam was the representative. He held the weight of responsibility. Think about the tabernacle. Moving to the next dwelling place of God that we see. The tabernacle was where God, once again, post-sin, was going to dwell with man. This is what we looked at in the book of Exodus. And we immediately see God's design as he's creating what this tabernacle is going to look like. Because it's his dwelling place with man. Man doesn't get to decide what that dwelling place looks like. God gets to decide that. But think about the very next instructions he gave. And these are the people who are going to be responsible for caring for the tabernacle. Well, we know of that, of Aaron and his sons. They were given the responsibility for caring for all things associated with the tabernacle. It was their duty to perform the worship ceremonies. They were in charge of caring for that place and making sure everything was in order. We can also look at the temple. The tribe of Levi, even after Aaron and his sons died, the tribe of Levi was always responsible for the dwelling place of God. You know, as even said, this is one of the points that we, we made in the Exodus study. That the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle, inside the temple, was an extension of God's throne room in heaven. Like the Ark of the Covenant was the footstool of God's throne. This is where God was dwelling with man. When you walked into that place, when you got close to that place, everything about it reminded us as creatures, God is here. And therefore, because God is here, he, he wants things to operate in a certain way, look a certain way. And he has given the responsibility to certain individuals to make sure that those things take place. Well, God still dwells with man. And the way that he does that, the living picture of heaven that we got to see with the Ark of the Covenant at the footstool, the living picture of heaven in this dark world is the church. Because God has continually called certain individuals to bear the specific weight of responsibility over worship and his earthly dwelling. And the way that that continues is the church. God is dwelling with us. As the body of Christ. Do you guys understand that God is dwelling with us? And the beautiful thing about the body of Christ is it's not just in some one temporary place like it was in the Garden of Eden and the temple and the tabernacle. No, God is in you in the Holy Spirit, but he's in us as the body of Christ. That when this dark world looks at us as the body of Christ, both 
specifically community Bible church, but also just the universal church, what they see is God. And God has not left his church undefined. He has not just said, okay, you guys can figure out how you're going to run that thing. He's been very specific about how he wants the church to look because if the church is the visible kingdom of God, we are a living illustration of the future kingdom to come. How we live, how we operate, how we function, who our leadership is even, is a living illustration of the kingdom to come. I know that we don't really have a lot of these around and it might not even be wise to use this illustration. I'm going to do it anyway. Think about a master and their servants. We don't really have a lot of masters and servants. Maybe butler would be his closest thing. But a servant is not in charge of the house. A servant is the representative of the master. So the way the servant operates, just think if, I'm thinking of like, I don't know why, like Downton Abbey's in my head. I've watched maybe a show of I'm not so. I, Amy watched the show. I'm going to blame her. I was, I, it was on someday when I walked in there. Doubt Nabby is, is, you know, somebody comes to the door. They're the representative for the master of the house. They are not there for their own personal glory. They're there for the master's glory. They're not operating in a way that's going to, you know, benefit them. They're operating in a way that's going to benefit the, the master of the house in the same way the church. We're not here for our glory. We're here for the master's glory, which is God's glory. And where am I going with all of this? It's been said, and I agree with the statement, that the church is God's evangelistic tool for the world. Here's what I mean by that. The book of Acts, we see the church burst on the scene. We saw the great commission from Jesus, Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see that great commission and action and acts. Where all of a sudden, in one day, there were, what, 3,000 or 5,000 converts in one day. I mean, it just, it went from nothing to something immediately. And the, the way that the world was evangelized was through the church, was through the people of God. And it can be very easy to think that our evangelism is only relegated to our pamphlets, or our mission trips, or our giving, or those mission type things, those evangelistic type things. What we're going to see today and what we could see in scripture is that even the structure of the church is an evangelistic tool for the world. Turn to 1 Timothy. Probably could guess that I was heading there, understanding that it's leadership selection time. I am going to get to elders and deacons. Those are the, the leadership of the church. But I want to start with 1 Timothy as a whole for a moment. As a young pastor, I've realized the thing that I need the most is an understanding of what the church should look like, what the church should be about, what the mission of the church should be. And it's been a source of conversation around here, but it's also been a source of conversation in my own heart. And one of the things that I have done personally is that over the last couple of months, I have read through the pastoral epistles. Now, maybe you don't know what the pastoral epistles are. There's three books in the New Testament, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. And the reason that they're called the pastoral epistles is because Paul was writing to two to two young pastors who were put in charge of establishing a church in a certain area. First and second Timothy, it was Timothy in Ephesus, and Titus, it was in Crete. And he's writing to, Paul is writing to these two men, describing for them the basic functions of what the church should do. So they're called the pastoral epistles because it's like, this is the nuts and bolts of what the church should be about. It's interesting. 
As I've been reading this, especially in 1 Timothy, what has just kind of come jumping off the page from me is that everything in the church, whether it's a structural detail, whether it's a theological detail, whether it's a point of view, whether it's a, a, a way of presenting yourself to the world, everything is there to emphasize and proclaim the gospel, including the leadership. Now, that's really the thing that I want to prove to you this morning. Maybe you're, I'm saying that and you're like, uh, that seems like a far stretch. That seems like you're overemphasizing something. I want to prove that to you. That everything in the church, even the details of the leadership, emphasize and proclaim the gospel. Now, here's how I want to do that. I actually want to kind of walk us all through the argumentation of 1 Timothy for a bit. And I'm going to read a lot of scripture this morning. And unapologetically so. Because the best thing that I could ever say is the word of God. Because my words are not infallible. These words are. My words are not inspired. Hopefully it's spirit wrought. But these words are completely inspired. So I, I don't want you, your eyes to roll back in your head and go, he's just reading again. I want you to hear the words of 1 Timothy in the same way that Timothy would have heard them when he received this letter from Paul. So I want to start in chapter 1. We're going to work through some of this argumentation and then we are going to land in 1 Timothy 3. That way you kind of know where we're going. But I want, us, I want us to see why Paul says what he says in 1 Timothy 3. Here's how this book opens up. I guess I'll start from the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by commandment of God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to stop real quick. Essentially what Paul said was the, was the formal, official, hi Timothy, how you doing? Now he's about to start his letter. So where is he going to start? I urge you, as I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrines. Whew, we are starting heavy right now nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's an interesting way to start a book. He's jumping in hardcore about what he wants Timothy to know. What does this opening statement even mean? What we can see from the very beginning was that Paul was concerned that the gospel... And the gospel alone was proclaimed to the world. What he was concerned about is that various people were coming in and they were taking bits and pieces of the gospel, but then adding their own flavor to it and calling that the gospel. And all of this leads down to sound doctrine. Really what he's saying is what 
I need you to be about is sound doctrine. And what is sound doctrine? Well, sound doctrine is the gospel. You see, Paul understood this. The only answer to a sinful world, the only appropriate answer, the only reasonable answer, the only accurate answer to our sinful world, our, the, the dark, sin-sick pathology of the human heart, that world that we all live in, the only answer to it is the gospel. So he says, in anything other than sound doctrine, which is in accordance with the gospel, needs to be gotten rid of. He is focusing this mission and vision of what he wants Timothy to do as tight as he possibly can be about the gospel. Now, how does he continue this? If I can just give a general overview. In the next couple of verses, chapters 1, 12 through 17, Paul goes on and says he's overjoyed that he has an opportunity to serve God. That he has an opportunity to promote this sound doctrine. And then he gives the charge to Timothy. Starting in chapter 2. And the charge is simple. And it's this. This is 2, 1 through 7. First of all then. Like if Timothy's taking notes, you can be like, okay, first of all. Here's what I got to do. First of all. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and for all who are in high positions. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. That is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul here is describing for Timothy in the simplest of words how the gospel is going to conquer our sin-sick world. How the gospel is going to overwhelm the darkness. How the light of Christ is going to be announced and is going to push back the sinfulness that we are all in. in. In the most simplest of terms, he's saying, listen, this is what you have to do as the body of Christ for the gospel to reign forth. And look what he said. Two very simple things. I, I, I'm, I'm emphasizing this because I think in the church we can, we can add so many different layers of details on things. And, you know, if I were to ask you the question right now and just go like, well, what, what makes a good Christian? What do you have to do to be a good Christian? In your own mind, just think about it. You're going to have a list of things to do. And, and that list is going to be different for each and every one of us because it's going to be based upon kind of our own personal experiences and, and, and which other churches we've been a part of and, and kind of our own natural leanings one direction or the other. So you're going to have your own personal list of what does it mean to be a good Christian? Paul here boils it down to two very simple things. Prayer and godly living. Just look again. First two verses of chapter 2. First of all, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and, be thank, and thanksgivings be made for all people. That's, that's prayer. I mean, these four words here indicate all these different elements of both public and private prayer. I mean, you have supplications, which could be boiled down to a, a request or 
petition is made and addressed towards God. You have prayer, which is really looking at that reverent communication with God, of intercession. This is a, a petition made on somebody else's behalf. And, and then you have thanksgiving, which is just the general emotion that Paul is having is when you pray. Well, why prayer? Why is it that prayer, if there's only two things listed, why is prayer the first one? Well, the gospel flows from prayer because it demonstrates our reliance and need upon a savior. It demonstrates the fact that we are not to live our Christian lives alone, separated from God. God did not save us and say, now it's up to you. Pick yourself, pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. Do it yourself. No, the first thing he says is what you should be known for as a people, as a Christian, as a church, is your reliance upon God through prayer. But then there's the second point. And the second point is that the gospel flows from our godly lives and that promotes the preaching of the gospel. Because... You know, he goes, you should pray for all people, by the way, not just for the church, all people, for kings, for all who are in high positions. Or just, I'll, 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 let the, I'll let scripture speak for itself. When was the last time you prayed for somebody in a high position? And not, Lord, can you get them out of there? But prayed for them. I'll let the spirit work on that one. That we may lead peaceful and quiet a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Why is it that Paul is concerned with how our lives look? Why is it that Paul is concerned that our godly, that a, that a Christian life is a godly life? And why is it that a godly life promotes the gospel? Paul, at the very beginning of this book, makes sure that Timothy sees that he is concerned with how the people of God live. For the rest of the book, that is what is being unpacked. It's, it's, it's a description of that. He, he is taking what that means to live a godly life as ambassadors for Christ, as representatives for Christ. As I said, every place where God dwells, he has, he has given a set of representatives for here. You are going to be my representative to this place, making sure that my glory is seen through you, making sure that you are caring for my dwelling place. We've seen this in the garden. We've seen this in the tabernacle. But guess what? Now, instead of just having one representative of Adam or some representatives in Adam or in um, Aaron and the Levites, now in the church, we're all ambassadors for Christ. As 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12 says, we're a kingdom of priests, we are, we are a royal priesthood. Now we are all that re those representatives. I mean, and this is where he goes, if you were to, if you were to continue reading, and I'm not, I'm not going to because we're going to get to chapter 3. He goes to men in the church. He goes to women in the church. He, he cares about how we care for those who are in need in our church. And he cares for the theology in our church. And he cares for the leadership in our church. Because what we're going to see today is that fitting into the structure of this book, we're going to see how the gospel flows out of the leadership of our church. I feel like that was a long enough introduction. So let's get into it. Elders... And deacons. Paul made sure that Timothy knew the qualifications, the qualities, the characteristics that the elders and deacons of the church should have. And he made sure about that because he understood that the leadership of the church was a microcosm of the gospel realities that Paul is calling us to. 
That the leadership of the church should be the living illustration of what Paul is calling us to. And he understands that if the leaders are the microcosm, the congregation then turns into the macrocosm of those same qualities. Essentially, if the leadership looks like that, the whole body is going to look like that. And therefore, it's going to be seen widely. Just read with me the qualifications for overseer in chapter 3. It says this. Saying is trustworthy. Essentially, you can trust this. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. Here's what I'm not going to do this morning. I'm not going to go point by point, point by point making a list of describing all of these qualities. And the reason I'm not going to do that is... I don't want our eyes to roll back in our heads, myself included. And I think they're meant to be understood at face value. Paul's not calling upon some quality that that we've never seen before, that Timothy has never seen before. He doesn't have to give a qualification for these things. Because he understands when you see it, you know it. And when it's not there, you also know that as well. But I am going to offer some structure to these qualities as we're thinking through this. And and what I hope is going to happen is that as we're talking about these qualities, because it is our leadership selection time, that men in our congregation will come to mind and that you'll go, they fit that bill. And maybe, maybe you're sitting there and you're going to hear these and you're going to think, maybe I got some stuff I need to work on because I don't fit that bill. The first seven of these qualities, these qualifications... Describe the virtues which an elder should have, should be endowed with. You can all see these in verse 2. These is, this is what a man should have. In verse 2, above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, able to teach. These are all the things that you should have. This is said in the positive form. And, and what you can look at that is there is a maturity there to this man's life. The next seven can be seen through verses 3 through 6. And these are the vices which an elder should not have. These are the vices that should not characterize a a man's life. This is what it said in 3. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. And he must not be a recent convert. Those are the seven there that when Paul is saying, this, these, these are the qualities that should not be characterized in an elder of the church. And then the last qualification is the reputation of the man in the world. And he must be well thought of by outsiders. What do all of these point to? I've been, you know, I, I, I do want to look at this at a high level. I'm not going to jump into the, all, all the various characteristics. I think all of these point to a life that is, has established a general blamelessness. One that is filled with grace and truth. One that, I, I think a way that you could describe it is a godly symmetry. 
that's included with all of these qualifications. I mean, just consider how every part of this man's life is covered. His marriage, his self-mastery, his ministry, his temperance, his temperament, his money, his family, his maturity, his reputation. These, these graces cultivate a godly symmetry in the, in the lives of our overseers and in the church. And therefore, the world can see this. So in one sense, if the church is there pressing back against the dark world, this man's life stands there pressing back against a dark world. This should be somebody that when they're out in the world that is, going against, that is following another law, that is following the, the prince of the power of the air, that is living for self, not living for God, should stand out. That people interact with them and go, you're different. You don't just fall in line with what the world says. You're living for something else and that something else should be Christ. You know, it's, it's inter- also, what's also interesting about this description, the same is true for deacons as well. Just think about the last job interview you participated in. There were certain questions that the interviewer could ask you. Like, what was your job performance like in your last job? What qualifications do you have to complete the expectations of this job? And, you know, where did you go to school? Why are you fit for this job? But there were certain questions the interviewer could not ask you. Because it was outside of the purview of the job. You know, you could, you, you could ask, what, what was your education like? But you couldn't ask, what was your home life like? You could ask, are you going to show up to work on time? But you couldn't ask, are you fighting with your spouse? Notice the qualifications for elder here and deacon. is not just, how are you like on Sunday morning? Or how are you like at home? Or how are you like with your Bible reading? Or how are you like with your fellow Christians? It encapsulates everything. It's looking at the individual as a whole. And, and I think just, if I could emphasize this, the, as when we represent Christ, when we are ambassadors for Christ, when we are called by Christ and saved by Christ, our lives are just not living illustrations and, and heirs of, of God here at church, but everywhere. How would your co-worker describe you? Your unbelieving co-worker. If we were to sit down and read this list about you, and I know that we're talking about elders and deacons, men, but ladies, we are all ambassadors for Christ. We all should be representatives. We should all have a godly symmetry in our lives. So how would your co-workers describe you? Would they say, yes, they are an individual that is living not following the course of this world, but is following Christ. They are an individual that has not set themselves to, to you know, have their best life now based upon what they can do. They're, they're an individual that has, has, set their, has set their life upon the word of God and said, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be about Christ. Would they look at you and say, yes, in all parts of, the, of your life, in your marriage, in your ministry, with your money, with your family, with your maturity, with your temperance, with your reputation, with your self-mastery, with your temperament, all, all of them, we can see Christ through them. Because without Christ, no person would ever live and operate like that. Food for thought. You can take that home and, and uh, mull on that one. He then goes on to deacons. Deacons likewise, this is 3.8, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, 
not greedy for dishonest gain, but must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, not, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. But those who serve, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to state something publicly and then say that it's wrong, but so often in the church when we talk about the uh, church's leadership, we can go elders, deacons, other people. Like there's a hierarchy of, so, of sorts. I don't think Paul's having some hierarchy here in the sense of your second class citizens, that, that the deacons do the things that, the elder, that, are, that are just above the elders. No, rather there's two types of things that need to be done. There's various roles that need to be done. There's a variety of things that need to be cared for in the church and the elders are going to have their eye on one thing and the deacons are going to have their eye on another. But to think that, that one is more important in God's mind than the other is foolish. Here we can see this deacon. Notice there's more emphasis placed on the fact that do they understand the word, do they understand faith? Do they, have they actually trusted in the word of God even more, than de- even more than elders? Because I think it's so easy for us to serve from the wrong motive. I think it's so easy for us to approach various individuals and say, I want to bless you with the, the acts of kindness. And if we don't understand that we're doing that based upon the gift that God has given us and not just to promote ourselves, we can so easily fall into this deception of saying, look at me, how great I am. But the same qualifications that are here for elders are also here for deacons. That Paul is concerned with sound character and a firmly held faith. He's concerned that these men understand where their hope comes from. It's not from their own hands, it's from Christ. Just notice how each of these lists starts. It's a more of a general characteristic, but I think it does well to um, uh, just give a general overview of where these lists are going. With elders, it's above reproach. That is general blamelessness. That somebody's going to look at you and say, you know, obviously they're not perfect because we're all sinners. So we're not saying we're looking for the perfect men among us because if that's the case, none of us are going to be it. And if you say you're perfect among us, no, you're not. Just give me time. I'll prove it to you. But this is being above reproach to them. Somebody looks at them and goes, yeah, they're not perfect, but they have a godly life. They have a life that's centered on Christ. And with deacons, look at it. It's dignified. They're not a fool. They're not being ridiculous. They're not throwing themselves around. They're, they're not being whimsical in their face. There's a dignity that relates to sound character and a firmly held faith. Both of these offices are concerned with the life and character of the individual holding it. Why? We'll go all the way back to where I started. Because the spiritual trajectory of a leader's life are of paramount importance in regardance with the, with the furtherance of the gospel. I'll say that a little easier. I wrote it kind of rough in my notes. The spiritual leader's life matters. The way we live matters. Not for salvation's sake. I'll draw that distinction. I'll put that footnote in. But the way we live matters. Because people look at us in our godly lives with our character, with our actions. 
And as it says in 1 Peter, we hope that people will look at us and glorify God on the day of visitation. That they'll see the godly symmetry that we have. They see that we approach life with a different set of lenses, with a different set of expectations, with a different set of rules and laws, with a different standard even. They, they see all of that and they go, you're different. You don't blend into the darkness like everyone else blends into the darkness. What, what, what's em, what, what is emanating from your life? And that's an opportunity for us to go, let me tell you about all of my great habits that I've built. No, let me tell you about Christ who has transformed me and has purchased me from darkness, has opened my eyes to my sins, has given me a grace that is unheard of in this world and has transformed my life. Let me tell you about him because what he did with me, he can do with you. We also have to recognize as we talk about all this. We've seen this go poorly in American evangelicalism and the Christian church. And it's, it's being highlighted now more, but it's, it's unfortunately always been there because sinners have existed since the fall of Adam. But in the same way that our godly lives can lead people to repentance because they see Christ in us, the lack of godliness in our life can lead people to despair. Because I am tired of seeing headlines of pastors falling into sin. But more than that, I'm tired of seeing people that bear the name of Christ act like fools. And be jerks in their workplace. And be known as much for Christ as they are for being a jerk. Shame on us that the body of Christ, having been given this amazing gift that we have, that we can turn around and we can allow ourselves, allow our fellow, our fellow brothers and sisters, allow our leaders to make a mockery of it. And so as we're approaching this leadership selection process, and I say this for Community Bible Church with us here, but also for everywhere, making sure that our leaders, making sure that we live a life that is above reproach. So that the headlines about us are not look at that foolish person that did that ridiculous thing that the world even would condemns. But it's, look at that foolish person who's doing something absolutely crazy because they're living for Christ. Christ's commission was very clear. Go into all of the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul's mission was, is very clear in 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, and all of his other epistles. That he is unapologetic that everything we do is directed towards and aimed at making much of Christ. Even in the lives of our leaders. As we're heading towards this leadership selection process, I, I, I hope... I mean, hold up elders, I just laid a weight on all of us. And deacons, I just laid a weight on all of us that's heavy to bear. And I, 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 I know all of us are like, oof, we're, we're all sinners. 
But I hope that as you're thinking about this, and really you're thinking about what are the, who are the men that are pressing back the darkness? Who are the men that are living a life that is contrary to the world around them? Who are the men that are, are, um, are, are, are there as the gatekeepers of truth? And in my mind, that's who are the men that are called to be elders and deacons. For the sake of our discussion this morning, I focused in on elders and deacons. But he didn't start there. Paul starts in this argument with men and women. He moves on from the argument of elders and deacons to the way that we care for orphans and widows. He continues in this discussion by talking about how we deal with false teachers. So you might be sitting here and say, I, got no, I can get nothing out of this. Yes, you can. Because your life, how you live your life matters. And it matters because it is pressing back every single day, minute, hour against the darkness. And it is pressing back saying, listen, that is not truth. Christ is truth. So I pray even as our leaders press back against the darkness, I pray that that's what our church does. That we would be known as a church that is proclaiming Christ. Is our mission that we exist to know, love, and serve Jesus Christ, and in so doing, grow the kingdom of God? That when people interact with us, what they see a bunch of normal individuals that are living life based upon a law and a gospel and a message that is countercultural. And I pray that people will see Christ in you and ask questions. Um, just prior to praying, I'll give some instructions about this process. Uh, the, the recommendations opened up today. We would ask that you would, um, you can go to our website, cbcnashville.org backslash leadership, and you can um, access the forms there. You can access other information like our bylaws. Why are we starting this now? It lists out in our bylaws what our whole process looks like. Um, and you can submit those names between now and August 31st. This is for members. Uh, they are the individuals who vote on this and affirm our elders and deacons for 2023 in November at our um, congregational meeting. If you're not a member yet, there's actually still time for you to become a member between now and our congregational meeting uh, on November 13th. Don't, I'm doing not that off the top of my head. We are having a new membership class starting in September Chair, what's the date? September 11th. September 11th. That's okay. It's, it's starting then. Uh, it's a, it's a three-week class. So if you've been around here for a while and you are not a member yet, you can uh, go to that class. It's first hour Sunday school. Um, and we would love to get you in that pipeline and, and have you join us um, officially in um, membership. So with that, I'll pray and we can take communion. Lord, thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you that we are, we are allowed to be ambassadors for you, that you allow our lives to represent you. Lord, that is a weighty, a weighty thing. Because Lord, I have to admit, I'm a, a terrible representative. Because you are, 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 are holy and I am not. Because you are almighty and I am not. And yet, Lord, I know that the thing that I represent the most is your grace. Lord, help us as a body, help our leadership as men to be men that press back the darkness, that the way we live our life causes people to ask questions of you're different, why? And, and gives us gospel opportunities. 
Lord, I pray for the body as a whole as we are thinking through our incoming leadership for 2023. Lord, bring the men to mind that you would have us bring that would join our leadership team. Lord, allow us to have the right conversations with them. Allow us to, to lead not from a, a, a place of, um, of pride or even from a place where we think that we belong there, but from a place of humility. Lord, and I just pray that you'd protect our church. Protect our church from the, the, the sin that has fallen upon so many other leaders where they take their eyes off of you and they start looking to their own glory. Lord, protect me from that. Protect our elders from that. I, pr- I pray that you would just protect all of us from that. That we would be testimonies of your grace. That we would not be testimonies of our own foolishness. Just be with us now. In, in your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.